and a one and a two and a one two three four hello welcome to industry talk welcome to house of strauss welcome to a live call-in show welcome to me time trying to talk too quickly stumbling bumbling uh it is the first night of the nfl season and we are joined by the one the only ryan glass of the new york post how you doing ryan I'm doing good. How crestfallen is the New York Times that the apocalypse didn't come before football season started? <laughs> I mean, this is a topic. Okay, we're going to get right into it. And I I think we've been, we've been given a good slate of topics by a listener. One, apparently, that you've blocked, Ryan, so you can't see him trying to produce our show for us. Um, and I, this particular... Yeah, you know, there's a there's a good slate. You know, he's got a good smorgasbord, which includes Pat McAfee joining College Game Day, which might be good to get into later. But I want to start with the New York Times' war on football, Ryan. And I thought I thought you were crazy, you know? I thought maybe you were you were out on the limb with your contention that the New York Times hates football. You know, just why why would they hate football? That makes no sense to me. And it's something you mentioned when the New York Times bought the Athletic that you thought it wouldn't work because you thought the New York Times hates football. But increasingly, Ryan, I, I gotta <laughs> wonder that maybe there's something to it. And can you introduce? Can you introduce what we're going to talk about? <laughs> because you thought it was a good. I don't know if it's Exhibit A, but it's in the evidence if you're making your case. So they they did a piece today. It was by um, Kevin Draper, who we both like personally, although I don't think he likes me anymore. Um, no, and so he he wrote a piece in which he he said, it, "Well, he he basically he." Um, he talked about how popular football is, although he didn't really go into the nitty gritty of how much more popular it is than everything else. But um, he he said there's some issues coming on the horizon. The median age is, of the viewer is 60, which I think is true for basically all the sports. The NBA is a little bit mm. lower. Yeah. Um, he said that um, there's less players in the in the who are playing high school football, which is going to like, you know, decrease the funnel. And he had, he went through all of like the scandals in the NFL of which there are many. And he said that, yeah, they've been impervious to them for now, but how long can they be bulletproof? Um, Mm. Do you have more to add about what the story um, summary of it? Well, there was an aspect of it. I found to be quite intriguing as a contention. And I didn't, agree with the gist of it. Um, and I think that there are some things to riff on, but one of his contentions, and you'd hear it a lot in 2016 around that time of high end NBA triumphalism, um, and a lot of NFL doomsaying and somehow Ryan has dropped off and I need to get him back in there, but you would hear it a lot in 2016 that, People aren't having their kids play football anymore. And so down the pipeline, this is going to undermine the popularity of the sport in the, uh, in the United States. And it's not a crazy contention. And the, the stat that Draper used was that it's down about 10% in terms of participation, um, youth participation in football. I just don't buy it, but it's not the craziest thing. It's not the craziest thing to believe that, um, that because you would have fewer people participating in the sport, maybe down the road, the sport gets less popular. 
I just don't think it works that way because for one thing, it, football is only compared to football. Um, it's not as though we're judging it relative to how great it's going in other countries. And we see that it's doing, you know, the talent isn't as good in America. So we're less enthused about it. Number two, I think his contention is that the talent would get worse and the game would get worse. I think that games progress so much on the basis of knowledge and people learning new techniques that it would overwhelm any sort of, uh, demographic time bomb as it were. Um, I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. You know, I mean, here's the, here's where the NFL is smart, Ethan. They saw this coming, and you know what? It really rises and falls on the quality of quarterbacks. Like, everybody else is important, yes, but nobody, like, tunes into the game being like, oh, man, I really got to see that center tonight. He's so great. Um, or, like, a left tackle, like. It just doesn't work that way. It's quarterbacks. And they have just tinkered with the formula of the game to elongate the career of these quarterbacks by making it harder to hit them. And so you see Tom Brady playing at 45. Like we're at a, like Aaron Rodgers would be entering, you know, the very end of his career until very recently. And he just won the MVP two straight years um they they have synthesized the game so that the quarterbacks last longer and i think that that more that like they last more than 10 percent longer and that um that the way that they did that really heads off the issue that he's talking about in my estimation yeah, I don't know if the correlation is all that strong as well. This is a great point that you're making that they've made it they've made it a quarterback's game and that anchors the sports popularity and I think there aren't so many parents who are terrified of their kid playing quarterback and the quarterbacks last for a long time and so they're this big presence in American life. I'm also just not sold in the idea that lower participation undermines the popularity. I don't know if there's much correlation between kids growing up uh, trying to be UFC fighters and how much people want to see the blood sport of UFC, right? Or if we're not going with a blood sport that has that inherent violent attraction to it, if you were to look at the former Yugoslavian countries, they've been uh, in this demographic decline or, or however you want to put it, or fertility decline, or they're shrinking in population um, for the last couple decades. And they're just churning out incredible NBA talent. So I don't know. I mean, there are probably fewer kids growing up in those areas of Serbia um, and uh, Slovenia and Croatia uh, then a couple decades ago and growing up and playing basketball, but it hasn't resulted in worse players. It's just resulted in better players. So I'm just not, I'm not so convinced that that's an argument that really, uh, that really holds water. Although again, you know, not the craziest thing. And um, it's not the craziest thing to think that the NFL has some troubles ahead, but it's always the question of relative to what, you know, what, what's the other sport? really coming up on the horizon to challenge the NFL. I mean, maybe they have less market share uh, than they want in the future relative to YouTube and things like that. But it's really video games. Video games are what sports need to be concerned about. I I would posit 
that the market share of time spent playing video games has gone up astronomically. Have I looked at the exact numbers? No, I've not. But here's the basis of my theory, Ethan. When we were kids, did you know anybody whose parents played video games hours a day? No. Do you know a lot of people our age now, now that we're in our mid-30s, and like parents who play hours of video games a day? Because I do. I was going to say I was I was going to say yes to help you, but the answer is still no. We have different networks, I guess, but I I know several people who do, and I would I would bet you any amount of money that thirty five to fifty five year olds are playing way more video games than they were twenty years ago. Um, I think that is true. I don't know how normal uh, it is, but that is a competitor. And like I said, you can make this argument that applies to all of sports, that there are these competing interests and kids just don't want to watch sports. Uh, And that is something. But if we're talking about it in the specific context of the NFL, I need to hear an argument of what sport is really going to elbow it out of the way, because it's still going to be king in the United States of America. And that isn't changing anytime soon. And what's different about today's argument versus those arguments in 2016. In 2016, they were making arguments about these other sports overtaking it, and nobody can say that. The NFL beat the shit out of these other sports over uh, that time period. Yeah, they planted their flag on Christmas. Like, NBA went packing and running from Thursday nights and what was like a savvy move and helped their overall viewership because they didn't want to go head-to-head with the NFL anymore. Um, just, you know, just an astounding proportion more people watch, like more, wait, probably 25, 30 million people watched this like Rams bills game tonight. That wasn't very good. And the average NBA finals game the last couple of years has gotten like 10 million viewers at most. Yeah. Well, as we have said, and we're one of the few places that says it, which again, I think is amazing. And I'm regarded as some industry freak for talking about it. Uh, The NBA lost half its viewership over that period of time from when, oh, here comes the NBA to challenge the NFL. Um, The the NBA lost half its viewers and the NFL kept all their viewers. And so uh, it was really hard to make an argument that anybody was challenging them. And then, the baseball didn't lose half their viewers, but they lost a lot of their viewers over that period of time. And so the only thing the NFL is really battling are all these other things outside of sports. But, it, the, okay, so this gets to the New York Timesiness of it. And again, we've got some respect for Kevin Draper, but it was interesting to see the snippet that was tweeted out to sort of um, promote the article because I do think you're you're onto something with this, man. It, it is a curious thing with the New York Times that they almost think they're too good for football or football is too base for them. And uh, he was quoting a professor, uh, Professor Vogan. I don't know at what school. I, I think it, it was like matter. Utah or Utah State or something. Something. And uh, <laughs> the quote is, I think people expect football and sports to operate as this kind of escapist spectacle and that at a certain level, they are OK with the contradictions and the hypocrisy and even with the discord that exists within it. People will say football is so American because is, is it uh, people will say football is so American 
because it is about violence and capitalism and territory and these myths of America. And maybe the hypocrisy and discord and corruption are just as American. What is like the country that like doesn't have, you know, injustice and hypocrisy? And why is in anybody going there? Like, why are people clamoring to get into America, like risking their lives to, to like get here? It just, you know, our inflow is so much greater than our outflow. Look, um, man, none of, none of these other countries were built with violence and, ter- and territory. Uh, they were just <laughs> kindly uh, decided upon these borders all over the world. I mean, I, I think there's something, maybe there's something to the argument. I know George Carlin has a famous routine of how American football is and how, it maps on to the American mind. Um, and th- there are these arguments. I would look, you could, I, I'm not somebody who can really look down on people for sounding pretentious when they write. Um, <laughs> I'm not talking about Draper. I'm talking about the professor, right? I'm not somebody who can do that. And yet, and yet I laugh because it does feel a little bit like overthinking it. Um, and it's er- anything to just avoid, it's a really good game, man. It's a re- if you know the rules, unlike a lot of Europeans, <laughs> it's just a spectacle. It's a really well made game. They uh, just the visuals involved in it, the stakes, how tense it is, how you can have these wild swings. They I mean, the players like well the scarcity too, and the players just you know you have to give your all in these games because if you don't, you're gonna get physically mauled. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's violent. That's part of that's part of the attraction of it. And maybe you could say that America is a violent place and therefore, therefore. But I would argue that people like violence. And if you were to make football a normal thing to watch in some of these other countries, I mean, the thing about it is the barrier of entry. Um, And I wrote about being in Israel once and trying to just explain American football to an Israeli soldier. And I found it impossible because it's similar to how with the language acquisition phase, if you grow up speaking a language, you speak that language, but it's really hard to acquire that language. You start explaining football to somebody who has no interaction with it. It's difficult. And I think that's the reason it hasn't, it hasn't translated so much like soccer where everybody gets it the second they see it. But American football is better than world football. I mean, maybe I'm an ugly American for saying it, but I just... <laughs> it's definitely... I, it's I've better sampled... than basketball, too. I'm sorry. I know everybody, you're, you're, you built your brand in basketball, but... <laughs> no comment. I, I would say that basketball absent great stakes is more enjoyable than football absent great stakes. And I do love, I do love the back and forth of the playoff series. So I'm not going to fully go there, but I will make the call on American football over world football. And Hey, yes, it's subjective, different strokes for different folks. I I just felt like I was lying to myself for years. I was one of those college hipsters who would wake up in the morning and, uh, and watch, you know, (laughs) and watch soccer. My roommate was a, yeah. I would contend that the New York Times has been on this, like, NFL-hating um, bend for, like, a decade now. And so that in and of itself is what made me skeptical that the people who run that organization 
are going to like successfully run the athletic when football is just so far and away the most popular sport in America. What do you think that's about? Um, not the athletic part, which I have to be careful about, uh, but the New York, is it really just as simple as football to them is still something that is beneath them and knuckle dragging? Yeah, and I, think they see and it as hu- I think they see it as human cage fighting, and, which I mean, I guess that's what the UFC is, but I, I just think they, they see it as, you know, we look back on the Roman gladiators and say, oh, we're so much more sophisticated than them. And I think that the New York Times brass is of the belief that in like 500 years or whatever, we're going to look back on American football as like, like we look back on like the Roman gladiators now. Yeah. And that is. I think a feature of a lot of um, intellectual progressivism, I know somebody who writes at the New Yorker, a friend of mine who who once asked me very earnestly, what's the thing that we're doing now that we're going to look back on the way we look back on slavery? And there are people who have that. Well, the answer to that is factory farming. Well, yeah, it's a pretty good one right there. I, I would also argue that we we kind of don't know. And that um, it might be something rather unexpected to us. And that um, there's also the other subversive question that people sometimes on the right ask, which is, would our ancestors be proud of who we are today? So there are different ways you could take this if you want to agonize over who you are and what you're doing. But most people don't. They just enjoy what they enjoy and they enjoy them some football. And I don't see that changing anytime soon um to what you said i think they've made some very savvy moves uh to protect the health of their sport and the other leagues have not been as savvy and what's funny is how the conversation about it changes i don't think the media really acknowledged i mean look if i were to critique draper's article and i think there were some valid points made within it i i would like the sports media that went down this road to revisit and go what did we get wrong and I haven't seen that because there was a legitimate moment where this was everywhere. And it was New yeah, York Times. Yeah, it was Times a topic and- of discussion on First Take. Bomani Jones talked about it. Like a lot of people had this yep. as, you know, a chyron of will the NBA overtake the NFL and when? Yeah. It, yeah. It was, it was ESPN. It was New Yorker. It was New York Times. It was New, York, New Republic. It was it just so many publications were asking this question. Again, I don't think it was a crazy question to ask at the time of CTE, but there was no revisiting and no going, okay, what did we what did we not see coming? What did we not see coming about the NFL? What did we not see coming about the NBA? And I think if you're going to ask this question in 2022, that's at least worth uh, revisiting. And I mean, we've been on this forever. I, I get annoyed in my own vain way about it, just how the the entirety of the sports media have, have just ignored massive changes in the public appetite. Uh, you know, tens of millions of people, millions of people changing their habits. And we just have pretended it away because we have certain preferences of how we wanted things to go versus how they, how they went. But speaking of you're, things that you're are talking popular, about with the NBA. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, specifically. Like there there was a little bit of wish casting. They became the the league that was okay to like and uh it it blinded people, I guess, to what happened and you know, we've 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 gone down that whole road. I don't need to revisit it. I don't need to revisit how uh well, <laughs> who so, are these right, so we're going to yeah. talk about BYU, but have you seen yeah. anybody associated with the NBA weigh in on these people who got let out of their sentences early and then went and committed murder no. in Memphis this week. I have no. not. No, no. That is not part of, well, this is part of the problem of the age we live in, where people have their general theory of what's wrong with the world and will just wait for whatever anecdote pushes that theory and will never talk about, well, on the other hand, or look at things happening in the macro and so no and i mean that is a whole other meaty topic that i did not anticipate us even getting into that the nba is involved in passing legislation um for what they would call criminal justice reform but when you're passing laws that deal with when you're letting people out of prison these are life and death decisions and Maybe the laws are too draconian. Maybe they could be trimmed here or there, but it's a heavy responsibility. And I'm not sure that it's the type of thing that you want to own as a sports league. Now, I don't think that they've been involved in any successful federal legislation yet, though they have tried. Um, So that hasn't become anything to really reckon with, but it is something to consider when we do see incidents like this, right? Well, yeah, we, you, you see any number of people in the sports media and the NBA on like really weighing in passionately on this BYU topic. We have not seen that with Memphis, which has been really um, with the, the word I'm looking for, but it, it's like, you know, reflective of what's happening in cities across America. Yeah. Uh, A microcosm this week. Yeah. Where where their their murder rate has escalated to like record highs. Oh. And twice this week they had people who got out of their sentences early go out and commit murders. Well, with Memphis, it's especially bad because overall we're in a better spot right now on the homicide question. uh, Not question, but just subject. Uh, than we were in the early 90s, although we're backsliding in that direction, but not Memphis. Memphis, it's it's far worse than it was even at the peak of America's uh, murder problem. So things have gone really bad there. And um, there, like you said, have been these horrific acts over the last uh, over the last week that have reach national news and are part of, I mean, this isn't just anecdote. That's what's frustrating is that there will be some sort of incident that will be pushed on social media as evidence of the grand problem we must all care about. It will be the current thing and it won't necessarily be attached to any broader trend. But in the case of this, as you're saying, you know, we had the largest rise in murder uh, percentage wise uh, in 2020 to 2021 in our nation's history. I mean, that's massive. That's at least at this point about 10,000 additional uh, murders and counting. And this wrecks people's lives uh, beyond the people who are obviously killed. I mean, it's just so damaging to the families and everything else. And so. Uh, it is rather amazing that there is zero 
concern paid to this. And it's just regarded as a topic where you're a racist if you express any concern about it, that you're going to be dismissed with pithily with your same what about black and black crime, right? That's going to be the response to it. And so it's something that you're just you're just not allowed to care about it. It's very unfashionable. It's very unfashionable to care about that topic. That's not a topic that the celebrities and the athletes uh, want to talk about. And if I'm trying to be fair to them, Ryan, I'm not sure they know what's happening. I, I, I'm really not sure they even know what's happening. Uh, all right. But like, so Don Staley, who cancels the like South Carolina BYU game over this volleyball incident. You don't think she knows that this is happening? Really? She's I really don't. I don't know what she knows. So to what you're saying, the coach of South Carolina women's basketball team, uh, she canceled uh, upcoming an upcoming game, right, uh, between BYU and, and her team based on this BYU incident, uh, this alleged incident that has no evidence of having happened. So if she's being that irrational and making that decision, Ryan, um, and it's just going off Twitter vibes or whatever, I don't know. Do you think, I mean, is anybody in her social circle talking about this? I, I really, I really don't know what people are aware of versus what people are in denial of. I mean, this is again, weightier than I thought that we would be getting into, but um, sometimes I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. A lot of people aren't avid news consumers. And if the main newspapers, and if they, and and, you know, it's not really being discussed on the news outlets that they are avid consumers of. Yeah. And it's not being discussed there and it's not trendy. It's not cool. I mean, on Twitter, it's like the biggest story in America at one point was a woman in Central Park threatening to call the police on a black dude who was saying that he was going to feed something to her dog or something like that. And that was like the biggest story. That was the biggest story in America that we were all supposed to care about. And so I think a lot of people naively suspect and not suspect a lot of people do naively think that if we're being presented with something in the news, that's because it's inherently important. If they don't really think about it too much, Um, and I don't think that's the case. I think what's in the news is often curated arbitrarily uh, or arbitrarily, but for it's being curated for the sake of pushing a narrative or an agenda. And it's not necessarily indicative of whatever is actually troubling the nation at scale. Um, but you know, a lot of people don't think that way. It's just, Hey, it's I, I. This is what I heard in the news, and therefore this is what's important, and therefore this is what I'm reacting to. I turned on the TV today, and Good Morning America. They were talking about these horrible racists at BYU uh, chanting the N word at this uh, black volleyball player, and they that were happened. still talking about this on Good Morning America today. No, I, I'm using, I'm doing fake news. I have no idea. I'm like guessing. Uh, all right. I'm but guessing. You, it did happen like yeah. a week ago or whatever. Yeah. 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 I don't know if it was even talked about in Good Morning America, but it feels like the kind of thing that would be discussed there, right? Yeah. So you see that, you react to that, and none of your news sources are talking about how this might be bullshit. Um, what, you think, you think Don Staley is reading Outkick the Coverage? Uh, I don't think she's reading Outkick the coverage. And then I don't think she's necessarily looking at some of these 
other she's not looking at the local utah papers that are walking <laughs> away from it and in the case of this particular story it's not like jesse smollett where they eventually caught him completely fabricating the story you you kind of can't disprove it they, they've gone over all the evidence they've gone over all the video they can't find it being said and nobody says it was said but i mean maybe she heard it or she heard a sound like it right it's not definitive so these publications don't feel the need to ever apologize for it and you still have uh mike freeman at at the U, at usa today calling it like a right-wing conspiracy to suggest it didn't happen um and then you've got another cohort in the media who almost have this belief that it's morally true so it almost doesn't matter if it's true and so yeah, I think a lot of people and we, we it was requested that we speak about the Mormons. The Mormons are easy targets in this. Um, just <laughs> By the way, apparently we're not supposed last, to call the them that. Jews. Apparently we're not supposed to call them that. Um, it, it's I think you just say it's hard though. It's like I, I, the Latter Day Saints. I mean, could somebody please reach out among our listeners in who are LDS? and tell us how to do this, because we want to say the Mormons, but apparently you're not supposed to say the Mormons. Uh, but yeah, there, there was there was a request for that. And I mean, this is a whole other subject where the local papers don't seem to have BYU's back. Uh, but yeah, it's but we're getting far afield. The point is, Ryan, <laughs> I have some sympathy for the people who are busy, who are not avid news consumers. And the news is uh, effectively propagandizing them. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. They're doing a good job of it. It's just unfortunate because it makes it very difficult to solve the nation's problems when the people running news organizations are more interested in pushing, I don't know, like... <laughs> <laughs> their version of what they want the problems to be rather than what the actual problems are. That's my, that's my issue. Yeah. And it's a cabal <laughs> of like the, all of like kind of the quote unquote respectable news organizations. And they've got a uh, hegemony on at least like half of America. And we're not claiming that like right wing news or whatever is perfect either. Like that's not no. what we're trying to they argue. Have, uh, they, a lack they of go and do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it like, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's just tough because, um, you know, we, when you look at what the what the problems that like we really need to solve are, uh, I'm not saying racism isn't a problem, but like we we have to really like we're we're, we're in a, a period of like escalating violent crime that really does need to be pushed back on if we want to like continue to be, you know, like a functioning society. Yeah. Well, that's a deeper question. And one that was on my mind uh, a bit when I was in the mission district of San Francisco last night, I'm looking around going, Oh my God, this is, I am legend. What is going on? In these there, there was a fascinating lawsuit. I don't know if you saw it, but um, a group of disabled people are suing the city of Portland for not keeping the sidewalks um, clear of mm. encampments and debris because they can't safely pass through. And I think that 
it's actually, this is going to turn into something that is like a pretty big story. And especially if it's successful is going to be um, really replicated in places like New York and LA and San Francisco. I do wonder if the backlash to this will be very swift once 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 we see that one city can pull it off because people don't want to live this way they're not into it this level of entropy um but these are weighty questions i have no idea ryan how to segue to pat mcafee uh going on college game day i mean how do i do that i i can't i can't pull it off Uh, you know mac yes yeah yeah, i heard francesa do this earlier he they were like talking about the jets like by the way, the Mets should not have retired Millie Mays' number. And just like total <laughs> hard pivot. And that guy is a long-term pro. If he can do it, we can do it. So yeah, by the way, be- America's cities are falling apart. Nobody in the media seems to care. And they want to be in denial of it. And <laughs> Pat McAfee's going to game day. Game day. Um, so this is two different stories. It's a micro McAfee story. And it's a macro ESPN versus Fox Sports Cold War in college football story. Um, so McAfee has had really, I've got the hiccups at the worst possible time, but yeah. McAfee has had a meteoric rise in media. He retired from the Colts to go to Barstool. Michael Wilbon called him an absolute mor- moron for doing it. He quit Barstool because he felt disrespected by the layers of management in between himself and Dave Portnoy and Erica Nardini. So his issues weren't with those two, but the people who were managing him in between them, because he didn't think they were respectful of his time and his business acumen and whatever. He starts his own show, grows it to the point where FanDuel pays him $30 million a year. He becomes the lead color commentator for WWE. Then he works out a deal with his former teammate, Peyton Manning, to do like the Manning cast, but for, I don't know, eight or whatever big college football games on ESPN. And then all of a sudden, a week into college football season, my colleague Andrew Marshan drops a bomb that McAfee is joining college game day. And so game day has an issue where... Uh, Lee Corso is getting up there in age. They're probably going to lose Kirk Herbstreet from that show, too, because he's currently doing Thursday Night Football NFL on Amazon and the ESPN College Football Game of the Week. Holy shit. Lee Corso is 87. Sorry, continue. I didn't know he was that old. 87? He's remarkable for 87. Everybody complains about him and wants everyone to be like a flawless broadcaster. But yeah, he's a marvel. And so they, they have some pieces going forward that they're going to need to replace. McAfee is high energy. And ESPN and Fox are in this land grab for college football supremacy. For like a long time, college game day was the only game in town. Fox launched Big Noon Kickoff. They added Urban Meyer to it. It's hosted by Rob Stone, Simsbury, Connecticut, Simsbury High alum. Um, the, like, it's not that they're beating game day every week or even many weeks, but they've beaten them some weeks. So all of a sudden game day has competition for the first time in forever. And 
ESPN as the SEC and ACC, which is poaching teams from other conferences, especially the SEC. Fox has the Big Ten, which just poached USC and UCLA from the Pac-12. These two networks are really going at each other for college football market share. And so McAfee becomes a very valuable piece in that land grab. I just love you powering through the hiccups with that amazing expository. That's very impressive, Ryan. Um, I'm curious about McAfee's secret sauce um, and the explanation of his dominance because he's got something. I don't even know what it is. He's just got this. He's funny and he feels just there's something just genuine about him. There's something likable about him, but it's almost ineffable uh, as to why he is. He is a potential star on the level of a Charles Barkley, maybe just in a different way. Um, He is he's just a unique character. And it's not like anybody would say, hey, this guy's got the best analysis out there and can really break it down, though. He he has played in the NFL and maybe he could. Um, He's a pro bowler. Yeah, he is. He is a pro bowler at his position. That is that is true. Um, And he's very he's very humble with how he approaches it. He doesn't, he doesn't want to show off that he's the smartest guy in the room. He almost has fun with this character of he's kind of the dumb bro in a way. Like, I don't think he's dumb. He's obviously very sharp, but he's, he, he wants to make you feel comfortable in that way. He's very deferential to the, uh, the NFL stars that, that he interviews. And, um, I'm just curious about him now, about how he has managed, how how he has managed to build this. What it is about his persona that really works? Because yeah, I had a sense that he'd become a superstar, and it makes sense that there's this bidding war over him. But now I'm almost looking back on it, and maybe I want a pretentious New York Times story written about how did this guy come to be? Hell, why am I saying New York Times? House of Strauss. I got I gotta get on this. <laughs> Yeah, um, so he is relatable, and he's authentic. He treats his, like, you know, cast of producers well, includes them in the show. And, and it's also, you know, do you, I don't know if you ever watched wrestling, but, like, there was this guy, like, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig, who his gimmick was, like, that anything that he wanted to do, he excelled at. And I think McAfee is a little bit like that in the sense where he basically he's wrestled a few matches for WWE. He did not train for like a very long time for it. And then he enters the ring in really like the major leagues and was exceptional at the art of the genre. And so there's the sense that like anything that he like wants to tackle he can excel at, but you root for him because he seems like a normal, relatable guy. And then he also like impossibly high energy. Um, And I think that a lot of like the people we've see on sports TV now are a little bit like, I'm not going to call them opportunists. That's like a little bit too far, but there's some professional cynicism in a lot of the presentation that we see. Um, you know, it's they're wear they're like perfectly manicured. They're wearing like suits and ties, or they look like they were drama kids in high school. Um, he is like masculine. He dresses like a normal person, and he 
enthusiastically loves sports. He's not going to stand there. Thick Pittsburgh accent. Very thick Pittsburgh accent, I would add. But continue. Yeah, but he's he's not uh, I'm better than you and you know it type of guy. Um, yeah. And I think that a lot of like sports analysis is either people who are speaking from like what they perceive as a higher intellectual perch or athlete trolling or that, you know, you can put people in a bunch of different buckets, but McAfee's secret sauce is his relatability. And wearing a tank top while broadcasting as at least when I've checked in on the show seems to happen at least uh, 80%, 80% of the time. The energy with him is just so immense that he's often just, like gripping a baseball bat or just grabbing something as he's uh, as he's doing the show, and yeah, that's something that that really uh, translates. Yeah, he he for looks him. like someone who just could not stand sitting in social studies class. Yeah, well, and this is one of these guys where he's big on YouTube, but he's not a household name yet, which is no, a he's a household guy. name. Well, I think he's about to be. I mean, he's a. Like, to us, we know about him. If he were to walk around, I'm sure a lot of people would recognize him. But he's not something that I mean, your I've dad seen, like, for the brand shirts in the airport. That's my litmus test on if somebody's been. Does your dad know who he is? Definitely. Okay. Well, I failed that test. Maybe he is. Maybe he's a household My, my dad I mean, is a very high-volume sports media consumer. Yeah. Um, there's no chance my dad knows, but my dad's not really a football fan. So he's not really the best, the best test. I mean, it just seems like it's good for him. My, to my get dad watches some, some... him with Rogers every week. Like he, he like texts me that it's coming on. Yeah. And I think that those were big for him. Even if he had already built up his brand and he built up his show, the Rogers interviews being national news. Uh, and, well, he, lets the, he lets Rogers say his piece. He doesn't like try and be, you know, like uh, investigative journalists with him. I think there's there's something to the fact that he lets newsmakers say their piece and make news. Yes, yes. Um, we haven't even talked about AJ Hawk. I mean, what's his whole role in this? I mean, that's the whole <laughs> thing. I, I, I'm curious. He, about he the smokes show a cigar and. Um, probably gets about like 15% of the market share of the airtime, but it works. Yeah, it does. It, it, it works. Uh, it, it works for him, whatever they're doing uh, works for them. And um, you know, it's interesting that it's a college game day thing. Um, not an NFL thing because that to me would have seemed a little more like the natural progression of it, but Hey, well, shut he up, said that, like the heads of networks just don't have, interest in him basically but i guess that must have changed very fast with espn and granted he was already in their like well, family he was so saying that he, he the way he presented it it seemed like jimmy pataro was aggressively wooing him um so i mean that's that that's a pretty high up guy to take an interest in you the guy running espn um look all i know is pat mcafee doesn't Did know you me from to dick ebersall with simmons no, you I should, feel like I but, would love um, that. So I don't remember what Simmons asked him, but Ebersol just went into like an unprovoked tirade about how Pitaro has cleaned up John Skipper's mess. And I think John Skipper did some like very good things at ESPN with 
the way that he saw like live rights becoming so important. I don't think that he gets enough credit for that, but just, it was very entertaining to hear Ebersol like viscerally offended by how Skipper ran ESPN and like doubly praised Pataro for like quote, cleaning up his mess. That was like worth the listen. I tend to take the perspective that these guys at the very top, though they might be employing a strategy I'm against, often have a remarkable skill set and a remarkable knowledge of their own industry. Um, I heard Skipper on a podcast with Lebetard where he was talking about the various TV rights deals uh, involved in the crazy breakup of all these college conferences, a topic that I don't have. You have more interest in that topic than I do. But I found myself just entranced just to hear the way somebody who actually had to think about doing these deals talked about them. And I'm not somebody who was I'm not somebody who looks favorably upon Skipper's reign at ESPN, but it was just a reminder of, oh, somebody who gets that position is in it for a reason. Right. That doesn't mean that they're doing the job they should be doing or making the decisions uh, in this high pressure job that they should be making. But they're they're there for a reason. They they have a skill set, and so you know I would recommend hell I'd recommend that episode if anybody can look it up of Lebetard and Skipper. But yes, I would love to hear Ebersol crushing Skipper because I don't know it's we rarely it's get funny. Insight. It's funny to hear these like kings of industry go out. Of each okay, other. can you can you read? I'm going to listen to it. And but can you retell just a summary for the listeners right now of what? Did Ebersol think that uh, that Skipper did wrong? He didn't. For those who don't um, know, Ebersol he, was ran NBC Sports. For those he, who don't, know. he didn't. He didn't specify, but I think it was really just. Um, well, Simmons interjected that like the relationship between ESPN and the NFL was hanging by a thread, and I think maybe if we can go to like a couple derivatives later, maybe that's why all of these conversations about when the NBA was going to pass the NFL might've been happening on ESPN's airwaves. But um, Mm. the, I think it was mainly that, which was that, um, you know, they, the, with Monday night football was just getting these like horrendous games, despite the fact that they were paying twice as high a rights fee as anybody else for the NFL. And yeah, I get it that, the re- reason for that wasn't to like get the blockbuster games so much as the fact that they could use it to um, hold like, you know, the Comcast and direct TVs of the world over a barrel for higher sub fees. But um, he, he really didn't specify other than just saying ESPN was a mess that Pitaro had to clean up. Mm. Hey, well, I know who I'll- who I want to ask on the old house of Strauss. Well, a lot of people, he has a book to sell, so you can probably get him. Okay. Okay. Hell yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now we're workshopping. We're workshopping. What we got to do for the website. I should also reach out to uh, McAfee though. I don't think he knows me from Adam. I just <laughs> think I'm not really in his orbit, but I would love to get some insight on what the hell he's doing with his career. Hey, have we done the episode, uh, Ryan? Uh, is there anything else? Is there any subject? Oh yeah. The guy who, I, I, was, I, I don't okay. want to talk about that yet. Cause I have to fact check my thing to make sure that it's right before I go public with it. Because okay. it was, uh, it was um, this is a tease, but there um, is a sports TV rating that was astonishingly low. And I have to make sure that, 
I'm a million percent sure about it before okay. I we won't talk. talk. We won't we won't talk about that one. Rich, uh, Rich Big Doinks, who attempts to produce our show, uh, the topics on here, some of which we have we have covered. Gottlieb and Freddie Freeman case. I don't know about that. Donovan Mitchell trade and the Knicks' inability to get stars. How much it hurts the NBA not having the Knicks be relevant. I mean, you can go to a House of and read. Yeah, it, it does, and you can go to the House of Strauss and read an article about that. Uh, the Bears moving to Arlington Park. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know anything about that. That seems like a Midwestern glass beagle kind of thing. Um, I have takes on it, but I don't think I don't know that people care. Uh, there's college football playoff expansion official, uh, NFL broadcaster predictions. What new booth will be the biggest success and any potential flops, anything to watch for. That might be a good topic to to get on out of here with. And he mentions NFL ratings predictions and mentions McAfee, which we've talked about and Patrick Beverly and Keenan podcast deal with Barstool. I'm not too interested in that. How about the broadcasters? That's what we'll end on. Um, yeah, these broadcaster wars, I, I, I feel like people cooled off on Romo. Romo mania is dead. Right. And I don't he know why. The coolest thing about Romo was how he predicted what the offensive plays would be before they happened, And he stopped doing that. Why did he lose the ability to do it? I don't know if he, so when he first started, he had just been in the league. So he had been like, you know, relentlessly watching film. Although he would, you would think that he would know defensive tendencies and not every team's offensive tendencies. But when he, now that he's been out of the league for four or five years or whatever, he's less in tuned as a competitor of all of these franchises. And so I don't know whether he is preparing less and therefore not as sharp on knowing what the place would be, but like, you know, like there was like a Patriots drive. I remember Ethan, where he would be just predicting the play every drive and get it right. Like I had a, a story at big lead, like in his like second or third week as a broadcaster, where someone like cut up a YouTube clip of all his predictions. And this story got like 10% of my traffic for the year. And so he stopped doing that. That was really cool. And that's why um, people aren't into him anymore is my theory. I still enjoy me some Romo. I, I, I still, I like his enthusiasm, the Pat McAfee level of energy. Um, he also seems like a normal, relatable guy. Like if you approached yeah. him at dinner, he wouldn't tell you to fuck off. Yeah. As effectively happened uh, with a guy I met on a plane in regards to Kenny Smith. And he was uh, shocked and scandalized by it, which uh, tickled me uh, to no end. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't have any real takes on the broadcasters. I feel like you like the Aikman booth better, better than I do. Uh, that's my memory. But yeah, I just, I, I like I lo- Aikman because he gets in and out fast. But he's so negative. He's very negative, which is kind of cool. But he really, when a guy is screwing up, he really likes to pour oh, salt. In I, I have something funny that I noticed today. So they were interviewing Al Michaels on the NBC pregame show. And, you know, they talking about the Rams or whatever. He's like, yeah, there's three teams in L.A. that matter. 
the Lakers, the Dodgers, and now the Rams because they're winning. And then mm-hmm. Maria Taylor, I think, or maybe it was a different host, had to remind him that he's broadcasting the Chargers next week oh, on Amazon. God. And he just uh, totally no-sold them as like an entity of, of mattering at all. And he's the I only mean, person who on. could get Spot away with lie. that. Spot the lie. You know, spot the lie. It's they don't matter. But, he, he, but like, you know, if they had um, Joe Buck on that spot or whatever, like imagine, you know, he's calling the Chargers game next week. He would put it in there even if he knows yeah. that it's kind go, of bogus. Go back to San Diego, Chargers. Go back. You at least had a base of something. You are nothing in L.A. It's just... It, Ill-conceived move. We talked about the good moves the NFL has made. Uh, that one right there, I do think, is a misstep. You can accuse me of bias, having grown up a Chargers fan in San Diego, but it sickens me to see them, uh, to see that particular brand with the same colors and everything else just languish. Um, anyway, uh, hey, got anything to plug? Anything? Anything as we get on out? No, I have nothing coming up, although I did have... Um... I, my my story on the Broncos offensive lineman whose wife just reached a million TikTok followers went up today. Um, I I appreciate that Yu Yang appreciated the Mike Francesa and Mad Dog rant about Willie Mays because um, I wrote that up and I thought that that was really funny. Um, no, I don't have anything else to plug. Do you have anything uh- to I liked, I, I gave uh, a, a non-paywalled uh, podcast with Casey Kiernan, uh, who's a YouTube NBA content creator who has hundreds of thousands oh. of subscribers. And I found a lot of overlap in uh, our processes. And it was a really good conversation. He talked about uh, nearly killing himself uh, with addiction and pulling out of it and turning everything around. And so... Uh, that one just went up today. I would I would recommend it highly, and there will be more content coming on House of Strauss. Re- including... Real quick, I want to I want to talk about like the, my Mr. Beast experience from this past Wait. week. Oh my god! Yeah, come on. Talk, so, tell us about it. um, I I wrote a story about like Nickelodeon or whatever last week that Nate Burleson's daughter was um joining this show with Burleson and Adam Schefter's daughter on Nick, where they cover the NFL. Um, I had reached out to Nick PR to like, you know, figure out all the ages of all the people and a couple other things. And then when I published it, I was like, my kids love Paw Patrol, which is on Nickelodeon. And she tells me that, oh, you should go to the Nick universe in Jersey. Cause she assumes that I live in New York when I, cause I work for the New York post. I don't, but I was going there last weekend anyway. So we went to the Nick Universe at this mall at the Meadowlands that is um, owned by the people who own Mall of America. So it's like adjacent to MetLife Stadium where the Giants and Jets play. And we get there and there, Ethan, like the there's like a half hour of traffic to park at the mall. I've never it's seen big time. like it. I'm like, Black Friday, Christmas, anything. I've never seen anything like this to just park at a mall. Like the their garage wasn't maybe wasn't full, but we figured out that we could pay five dollars to park in the Meadowlands like Jets parking lot 
um, and just be done with sitting in traffic. So we pulled off and did that. And this parking lot is, you know, mostly full. Now, are all the NFL parking lots there full? No, but this one, like, had a good amount of cars in it. And so we get in there, and it turns out that Mr. Beast, who's this YouTube star, is opening his first physical restaurant. He's not this YouTube star. He's, like, the YouTube star. He is the guy right now. I mean, this guy, it's it's funny. Again, this is, is he a household name? Or is he not a household name? He's the most famous non-household name in the world, perhaps. Um, yeah, he's been on Rogan and people have talked about him. But he's making his videos get translated into other languages. So Mr. Beast is getting watched in India, in Japan. I mean, this is becoming a worldwide property. Uh, this guy doing these elaborate YouTube videos. So we get into the mall. And there's, like, the longest line I've ever seen to eat at his hamburger restaurant. And, by the way, it's, like, been an existent ghost kitchen, and I've had it, and it's fine. Um, But this line is, like, thousands of people long. And so when we finish with, like, the Paw Patrol world or whatever, there's still just thousands of people in the mall who like aren't waiting in line anymore or anything. Three levels of this mall. There are just people standing there chanting for Mr. Beast, hoping that he'll like come out of a door and wave to them. It's like, they're not going to meet him. They're not going to get his autograph. It's just, they're hoping to get a glimpse of him. And I was trying to think if there's like anybody who works in sports media, maybe McAfee, who could like draw a crowd like this just to like bask in being in the same building. Uh, Do you know how many people have seen his squid games in real life video or how many views, not how many people, but how many views on YouTube? Let me, I'll guess 20 million. 287 million. Yeesh. Well, those can't, I'm sure that a lot of those people are repeats, but yes. I mean, yeah, but he's got over 100 million subscribers on YouTube. And so were these, well, I'm, were always these just... I'm always um, suspicious of gross follower accounts because I with, think that... I am with everybody. But for this guy, I mean, this guy, this guy really is. is well, I, yeah, I'm not skeptical of it now that I saw literally <laughs> 10,000 people go to a mall to like eat his like B plus hamburgers. I mean, uh, that's just, yeah. Any any sense of the demography of the fandom? Were these very young I, kids? The fans were or... mostly, I'd say, 13 to 25. And the parents who had to be there were, like, exasperated with the idea that they had to be there. Well, that sounds about right. Well, thank but, you so much, Ryan. So Check... I, I had to get that in because there's nowhere else. No. I think it's a fascinating slice of life. I mean, I could, if I would, I, if I were there, I would have thought, okay, how do I turn this into a scene in an article or a book or something? I mean, that's just a, it's fascinating how massive the Mr. Beast phenomenon has gotten. But anyway, Ryan, thanks for doing this. I think next week is sports calendars picking back up again. We're out of the dog days. Things are going, things are moving. (laughs) Good job by you. Until next week. Bye. Bye.